0: Well, welcome here. There's lots of connecting going on out there. If the countdown didn't get your attention, then the, like, little sound that I imagined the force would make, if it was real life, would make, probably did. My name's Mike. I'm the youth pastor here. And as you're coming to sit down, I just want to let you know that you can keep up with what us youth are talking about at youth nights on this little blog that I've put together. It's uh, JRCC Wired because Wired's what our youth called, dot So parents, if you're ever curious what I am teaching your kids, you can go on there and see. And we also post uh, some of the discussion questions that we've talked about so that you can continue those conversations on with your kids at home. Um, we want to be able to equip you to have these conversations with your kids because you are the primary influence in your kids. No matter how much I can tell them, they will probably listen to you more than they'll listen to me. Probably. No guarantee. But I, we are here to help you with it. But this weekend, we are continuing our series of four small words. We've already gone through two of our words. We, oh, that's Tyler's heresy horn, he calls it. So... I don't think I said anything wrong yet. So it's just testing, they're making sure it's working. We we'll start with Genesis 1 to 2, and our small word was of. We are made in the image of God. We need to know who we are of to know who we are. And then last weekend, Brad took on the difficult task of between doing the Old Testament, the rest of it, Genesis 3, all the way to Malachi 4 which he was able to do quite well, I think. And the small word was between, our separation, sin coming between us and God, and God working at getting between sin and us with his covenants, his temple, the tabernacle, prophets, the kings. And then this week we are looking at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and our key word is with, God with us. And then next week will be uh, the epistles and Revelation in. But we'll let Brad do that next week. So the Gospels. We read earlier John 1, which through his poetry, he's proclaiming that the Word was God and the Word was with God in the beginning. And then now the Word becomes flesh and dwells with us on earth. And these words that John writes are to a people who were waiting and waiting and waiting for this to happen. This was huge news for them, that God was with them. Their ancestors were used to having God with them. They were guided out of Egypt by God, who is with them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, who dwells in a tent amongst them as they travel through the wilderness for 40 days, And God is quite happy to dwell in that tent right amongst his people, moving along with them. But humanity isn't as happy with God living in a tent and wants to build them this glorious house, kind of domesticating God, in a sense. And God's like, okay, you can build me a house. So they build this glorious temple. And we see the completion of that temple in 1 Kings here. When the priests came out of the holy place, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. So God fills this most holy place, and now he's dwelling with his people in their capital city of Jerusalem. But this soon changes as Israel's bad king after bad king keeps breaking the covenant, and Israel sins over and over again despite prophets coming and telling them to stop and come back to God. And eventually God has had enough. Ezekiel tells of God's presence leaving the temple, and shortly after, Babylon comes and destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and takes Israel to their capital city in exile. Eventually, Persians come and say, okay, you can go back to your land, and so they go and rebuild the temple. And then we see the dedication of that second temple in Ezra. And it says the temple was completed on March 12th during the sixth year of King Darius's reign. The temple of God was then dedicated with great joy by the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the people who had returned from exile. During the dedication ceremony for the temple of God, 100 young bulls, 200 rams, and 400 male lambs were sacrificed and 12 male goats presented as a sin offering for the 12 tribes of Israel. Then the priests and the Levites were divided into their various divisions to serve at the temple of God in Jerusalem. As prescribed in the book of Moses. And there's a big difference between this dedication and the first dedication. At the first dedication, the priests had to stop working because God's presence was so immense that they couldn't complete their work. At the dedication of the second temple, the priests get right down to work because the glory of God never actually fills the temple again. God's presence is never mentioned as filling that second temple. And the Jewish people believed that God was no longer with them. They still were God's people and were eagerly awaiting the day that God would be dwelling amongst them again. And then John's words come to stand out. God was taking on flesh. God was dwelling with his people once more. If you go by Matthew's genealogy, it has been 14 generations since God has left the temple, since Israel has gone into exile. And 14, when I hear 14 generations, I got 14. That's not that big of a number. But if it was your ancestors, it would be your great, 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 great grandparents that last experienced God dwelling amongst them. They've been waiting for a long time. Now finally, God is coming and dwelling with his people again. N.T. Wright, in his book, Simply Jesus, says that Jesus is coming in the middle of a perfect storm. Three elements are colliding to cause this storm. The first element is this Jewish expectation. These people have been living in an empty temple for 14 generations. They have been oppressed by the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, and now the Romans. But this whole time, every year, they gather. Hundreds of thousands of Jewish people gather in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, remembering the time that God delivered them under the hand of the Egyptians and guided them through the Red Sea. Remembering this every year, praying, hoping, and looking forward to that time when God was going to deliver them again. Wright says that they believed their history had a goal in mind, that this great savior was going to rise, reaching the great climax of their history. And they believed it was going to happen any moment now. It was coming. It was going to happen soon. So you have this Jewish expectation, and butting up against that is element number two, which is the Roman Empire. They marched and conquered their way across the known world, and their savior was Caesar. Caesar. Augustus Caesar rose amongst the turmoil that occurred after his adoptive father, Julius Caesar, suddenly died, and people are fighting for power over the Roman empires in shambles, and Augustus Caesar comes and wins victory and unites and strengthens the kingdom once more. This is their savior, and they have this little piece of land that is occupied by the small nation of Israel that is vital for their empire to run see up in Rome in Italy was a massive population and they didn't have enough food up there to be able to feed everyone so they really needed Alexandria and Egypt to grow all their grain and then ship it up to Rome but they couldn't really ship it across the Mediterranean because their ships aren't like our ships today and it was unpredictable and very dangerous so they had to take it by land And right in the middle of that route is Israel, Jerusalem, guiding it to Rome. They really did not want to lose this piece of land. Otherwise, their kingdom is divided. And as we know, a kingdom divided cannot stand. So we have this Jewish expectation and desire to be free from the impression of Rome, and Rome really, really not wanting to let go of Israel at the same time. So you already have this storm, and then the third element comes in, and that's God himself acting. God comes in and his plans don't go to the expectation of the Jewish people. And he brings in a kingdom that doesn't meet the expectations of what the world thinks the kingdom looks like. And Jesus comes using the very words of the Roman Empire. During this time, there is these statues of Caesar Augustus all over the place. Jesus would have been walking by them throughout his life and the inscription on these statues said this good news we have an emperor justice peace security and prosperity are ours forever the son of god has become king of the world good news gospel the words that jesus uses to proclaim the kingdom coming son of god A Caesar is considered son of God because once an emperor dies, he's now a god. And so the person who takes over, usually a son, is the son of that god. Jesus comes as the son of God and king of the world. But Jesus doesn't bring in this kingdom the way anyone expects. He doesn't bring it in the way the empire brings it in with war and violence. He doesn't bring the kingdom in like the Jewish people expect. God comes to be with Us in four different ways, and these ways weren't the expectation of anyone. First, God doesn't enter the world the way anyone would have expected him to enter. This is the God who spoke to Moses through a burning bush, guided his people by parting the Red Sea, and with a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire, and whose presence when filling the temple was so great that the priests couldn't continue their work. You would expect his return to be of the same magnificence, same might and power of a mighty and powerful God. But it's very humble and human, while at the same time divine. We see the divine side in the angel's message in Matthew 1. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, She became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Angels come speaking messages. A virgin gives birth. This is the divine side of Jesus' birth, but it's very human at the same time. We often fabulize, which is a made-up word because I hang out with Brad too much, the nativity story. It's a fairy tale in our minds often, but Jared Stevens, who we've taken the series from from his book, Four Small Words, describes it, and I like the way he describes it. He says, there is nowhere for them to stay, nowhere for them to go, 80 miles from their family and community that still questioned Mary's pregnancy. No matter how much we try to paint them as saints, you have to believe that this was a trying and difficult moment for Mary and Joseph. In a final act of desperation, Joseph talked someone into opening up their garage, pushing some of the mess aside, and then letting them stay there. This stranger's garage would become the birthplace of the Savior of the world. No doctor, no doula, no comfort, no privacy. There was blood, and screaming, and cold, and animals, and dung, and hay. And before Mary could even get her new baby to learn to latch, strangers come stumbling in. Shepherds, social outcasts who spent the majority of their time talking to animals. It's not nearly as neat and tidy as our nativity scenes make it look. There's blood, there's dung. We often add a lot of hay in there, so that gets it right. There's screaming, it's painful. All this is happening. They didn't have time to tidy up the stable. They weren't expecting someone to be residing in there. But this is the way that God chose to enter amongst his people. He came to be with us by entering the world the same way that we do. A vulnerable baby, a child, raised by a mother and a father. And as he grows up, he works in his father's profession most of his life, working as a carpenter. The majority of his life, people will look at Jesus and just think he's an everyday, ordinary man. There's nothing special about him until he steps onto the stage for his ministry at about 30. And Jesus spends his life with us. It's the second way that he's with us. And he comes to show us what the kingdom of God looks like when it comes amongst human beings. The first time it records Jesus preaching in the Gospels, he's proclaiming why he has come. And it doesn't go over very well. In Luke 4, it He comes up and he gives the sermon. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news, gospel, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor is come. He rolled up the scroll and handed it back to the attendant and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? So far, so good. He's preached scripture, and he got, I was resounding, amen. He's preaching the things that people want to hear, setting free. This must mean that we are going to be set free from Rome, finally. But they must have pressed him on for a sign, because then he goes on to say this. You will undoubtedly quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. Certainly, there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, but there was only one who was healed, Naaman, a Syrian. When they heard this, the people were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. It takes a complete 180. They go from giving him praises to wanting to throw him off a cliff. Not a great start to a sermon. I'm hoping that no one's going to try to throw me off a cliff today. I don't think there's any cliffs around, so... In essence, Jesus' message was saying, I have come to be with those whom no one else wants to be with. And we can tell this in light of his ministry. Tax collectors, the sick, the poor, the oppressed, the people that those in charge of the temples didn't want anything to do with, tried to stay away from. And Nazareth, where he's giving this message, his hometown would have loved these words. They're a very poor town. And then they ask him for a sign. This is his hometown. He's done signs before. He's going to give us special treatment. He's going to put on a great show. But Jesus never performs a miracle as a, just as a sign to prove his divinity. That was one of the temptations he faced when he was in the wilderness for 40 days with Satan. He's, Satan wanted him to jump off the temple where all the key leaders would be and the angels would catch him and everyone will believe that he's divine. But Jesus doesn't fall for that temptation, and he doesn't do it here either. Instead, he gives him two stories from Scripture, both stories where foreigners are getting healed and not Jewish people. And this is starting to suggest that God's favor is for the Gentiles, which infuriates them so much that they're willing to throw him off a cliff. Our God, the God of Israel, is coming to save us, the Jewish people, and get rid of these awful Gentiles that are oppressing us. But that's not what Jesus came to do, and they are not happy about that. Jesus spends his ministry traveling around, teaching and healing, something that they never expected their Messiah to do. In fact, they never actually believed the Messiah was going to actually be God. God. They were all promised that it was going to be a king from the line of David. So you would assume from that that some human from David's line was going to be anointed by God and be a king, just like David. An example of what they expected is shown in one of the guys who has the greatest nicknames in all of history Judah the Hammer Maccabeus. And he comes and he proclaims the Jewish kingdom, enters into Jerusalem recaptures the temple and cleanses it from all the pagan imagery in it. And this is the event that Hanukkah celebrates. Everyone thought that he was the Messiah because he had declared this kingdom and he had conquered over the nation that was oppressing him at the time, freed the temple, instead set up the Jewish kingdom. But they never entered the golden age and so they soon found out that this wasn't the Messiah. In fact, the family that took power, Hasmoneans, who he's from, these Jewish kings, were so awful and terrible to the people that they went back to the nation that was oppressed to them and asked them to get rid of them. That's how <laughs> awful he was as a Messiah. But this is what they're expecting, a God-anointed human who would march into Jerusalem, cleanse the temple, and set up the kingdom of God. But God himself comes to be with his people. And he teaches with authority as if he himself is God, which throws them all off. But he gives them a hint. In Luke 20, he says, Why is it, he asked, that the Messiah is said to be the son of David? For David himself wrote in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies and make them a footstool under your feet. Since David called the Messiah Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? The Messiah isn't just a God-anointed human, but is God in human form, God taking on flesh, and he heals as a sign of the kingdom of God being near. And they didn't expect him to come healing. The Messiah is supposed to come slaying the Gentiles on the way to Jerusalem to free us, not healing people. That's the opposite. And it was so unexpected that John the Baptist, the one who came to prepare the way for Jesus, also was caught off guard and didn't really expect this to happen. He sends his disciples while was in jail to go to Jesus. And they ask him, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? This is John the Baptist who prepared the way for Jesus. And Jesus told them, Go back to John and Tell him what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is preached to the poor. He tells them that this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what the Messiah has come to do. People healed of their infirmities, and the good news is preached that they are forgiven. God with us is shown by God entering the world just like we do as a baby. God with us is shown by Jesus' life and teaching. People are healed, forgiven, and the word is taught with authority. This is God's kingdom, and it looked different than what the Jewish people were expecting and different than the Roman people expected the kingdom to look like. And his victory was different than anyone else thought victory could be won. God with us is also God dying for us, Judah the hammer wins battle after battle on his way to Jerusalem. He marches into Jerusalem upon a war horse as people praise God and wave palm branches before him. He enters Jerusalem, goes to the temple, gets rid of all the pagan paraphernalia that is strewn all about the place. This is what they thought the Messiah looks like. And then Jesus comes, and his entrance looks kind of similar as it's told in mark then they brought the colt to jesus and threw their garments over it and he sat on it many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him and others spread leafy branches these were palm branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessings on one who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessings on the kingdom of our ancestor David! Praise God in the highest heaven! Jesus strides into Jerusalem as people are waving palm branches, their symbol of victory and triumph. But Jesus doesn't stride in on a war horse, but a donkey, symbolizing peace, Jesus also heads to the temple. And it says, When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, The scriptures declare, My temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Jesus cleanses the temple not from pagan imagery or from the Gentiles themselves, but from the Jewish businesses selling items for their sacrifices. He does this in the outer court. The most inner court is where God dwells and only the high priest can go in once a year. Then you have a court for the priests to do their work, then a court for the Jewish men to worship in, then a court for the Jewish women to worship in, and then you have the outer court where these sellers are selling their fares, and it's the area where the Jewish people can come, or not Jewish, Gentile people can come to worship God. They've basically taken the Gentiles' center of worship and turned it into a shopping mall. And Jesus cleanses it, saying, this is a house of prayer for all nations. Not just you Jewish people, but God desires all people to come and worship him. This isn't what the Jewish people wanted out of the Messiah. They wanted a cleansing from all things, not Jewish. Not a cleansing of Jewish things for the Gentiles to be able to properly worship. And now his next step is to set up his kingdom, the Jewish kingdom, to establish his throne. But his crown isn't bejeweled and sparkly. His throne isn't a golden throne that we expect kings to sit on after their victory. He's not dressed in fine linens and surrounded by a court of earls and dukes and nobles. His crown is a crown of thorns. His throne is made of wood and he doesn't sit on it. He's nailed to it. He's stripped naked and his court is full of robbers who are also crucified with him. This isn't the look of a glorifying, powerful, ornate human king. It's a look of shame, weakness, and violence. And this is God with us. It's our violence that puts him on that cross. It's our weakness of falling into temptation and sin over and over again that is displayed. And it is our shame of our wickedness that, is, that he takes on. God enters the world as a baby just like us and God exits with one last breath just like us and then we get a view of what it looks like when we are without God throughout his time traveling and teaching and healing people gathered around Jesus he gathers twelve disciples great crowds gathered to hear him speak people gathered wherever he went there was even a large crowd when he's been crucified, and then this happens. And when all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw what had happened, they went home in deep sorrow. But Jesus' friends, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching. This was it. The Messiah who claimed to be God and who was to set the captives free, just as he proclaimed in his first message, was killed by the captors. The Roman Empire he is supposed to overthrow threw him upon the cross and killed him. The people who gathered now scattered to their own homes. The hope that brought them together was dead. Those close to him watched from a distance at their Lord's lifeless body. The very followers that boldly waved palm branches proclaiming victory over the Roman Empire as he entered Jerusalem now locked themselves in rooms out of fear. And Jesus is laid in a tomb with a boulder rolled in front of it. But it's not the end. They go to anoint his body and they find the boulder rolled away from the tomb and the body gone. And just like the beginning, angels come with a message. Why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. The cross was not the end of the kingdom, but the tool to solidify it. It was not the death and defeat of God, but the victory. The rock is rolled away and the tomb is empty. And Jarrett Stevens makes an interesting point, saying that for most of his life, and I identify for most of my life, he believed the reason that God rolled away the stone was so that Jesus could get out. It's not great if you're resurrected and you're trapped in a tomb. <laughs> Guys, let me out. But then he reflects on this, and he says, there's no rock on this planet that could hold him back. The tomb wasn't open so he could get out, but so that you and I could go in. It was rolled away so that we could see that death is defeated. That nothing can separate us from God. No rock, no temple curtain, no sin, no death, no fear. Nothing can separate you and me from the love of God found in the risen Jesus. The rock was not removed so that Jesus could come and be with us again, but that we can go in and see and believe. And it goes a step further. It's no longer just God with us. But I'm going to leak a spoiler for Brad's message because he did that to me three times last weekend. (laughs) But it's God in us. It's the kingdom in us. And the death and resurrection isn't the climax of the story. It's the beginning. It's the kingdom initiated but not complete. We're living in that it's here but it's not yet time period but I'll let Brad preach that. This week, we need to know that Jesus came to proclaim that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, and that the oppressed will be set free, and that the Lord's favor has come. His life saw people held captive by sickness and by death healed and raised to life. All of us were blind to God and Jesus opens our eyes to who God is, love. The Jewish people thought that their oppressors was Rome and that they needed to be set free from Rome. But God knew that their oppressors was sin and death and that's what they needed liberation from. And Jesus sets us free from that sin on the cross and he sets us free from that death and his resurrection. The stone is rolled away. Come in, see the empty tomb, and believe. God has overcome the thing that has come between us and him, and now it's our turn to respond. It doesn't matter if you've heard this gospel message over and over again, we always need to hear it. It doesn't matter if you have before confessed your need for Jesus. We continually need to come before Jesus and confess it. Those who Jesus healed first had to recognize that they were sick and needed healing. And then they had to profess their belief to Jesus that he could heal them. And that's what we need to do as well. We need to come to Jesus, confess that we need healing, that we are sick with sin and profess that we believe that his death was victory and has taken care of that sickness and that his resurrection has freed us from death. And that is the good news, the gospel that Jesus comes to proclaim. And as the worship team comes up to lead us in a time of response, we're going to have some people on the sides to pray with you Brad and Allie and Curtis. And sometimes those people who needed healing needed someone to come with them and carry them to Jesus and bring them before them. And these are what these people on the sides are going to be here for you as well to help bring you with them before Jesus so that you can experience that good news, that freedom from sin and that freedom from death.